My name's KP Reddy. I'm the general partner here at Shadow Ventures and super excited today to uh, moderate um, a conversation around our multifamily tech accelerator and some of the venture partners. And uh, I think it's important both from the startups and as well as investors to kind of understand the, the people behind the logo, so to speak. And I think uh, at the end of the day, you kind of invest in people and uh, part of the process and journey for this program has been getting venture partners involved that actually know the industry, um, have been investors in prop tech, and actually are true value add versus people out there that talk about value add but don't really add a lot of value. So um, with that, I thought we'd do some in introductions. Um, Akshay, would you like to give us a little bit of your background? Great to meet everyone, and, and thanks to the Shadow team for hosting. Uh, my name is Akshay Gandhi, Vice President at Olive Tree and, and partner at Olive Tree Ventures. Um, we are an owner-operator of multifamily assets uh, across primarily the Southeast uh, with just under 7,000 apartments in ownership. Uh, we've also got a hospitality vertical. Uh, and Olive Tree Ventures was uh, sort of founded uh, as a vertical that I lead um, to sort of capture uh, value within the sort of adjacent tech ecosystems to real estate, uh, multifamily in particular. Uh, and we're looking to partner with groups like Shadow, um, you know, pilot some projects on our own uh, and broadly uh, look to get more involved in the, in the space. Perfect. Uh, Robert, would you like to go next? Sure. Thanks, KP. My name is Robert Salwasser. I own a property management firm located in Cupertino, California, right in the heart of Silicon Valley here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We manage primarily mid-sized to larger apartment buildings and um, we do that for high net worth individuals, for high net worth families, and some smaller institutions. Been in business more than 35 years here in the Bay Area. And uh, so we are owner operators involved in this industry. All right. Thanks, Robert. Uh, Vic, would you like to go next? Happy to. Hey, guys. Vic, Vic Trauman here. Uh, I'm a New York-based entrepreneur. I've been building stuff all my life, mostly data products. Um, I'm also a founding member of the PropTech Angels Group, uh, where we look at uh, companies that are doing something interesting or impactful to real estate across asset classes. Uh, we slowed down a little bit since pandemic, but otherwise have a pretty active deal flow. Um, and with separate hats, I have insight into multifamily development, um, long-term multifamily buy and hold, and I hope to bring those perspectives here today as well. All right, great. Thanks for joining us. Um, and the most entertaining of the bunch and the most fun, Johnny, you can go next. I guess that's me. Uh, good afternoon. Nice seeing everybody. Uh, my name is Johnny Haber, and I'm also a New York-based entrepreneur. Uh, my background in multifamily, I started out my career actually as an investment sales broker, um, selling commercial uh, real estate in New York City, focused on the middle market of multifamily. And then uh, I had worked for doing that about four years, went into acquisitions, and then helped scale a startup called Appear Here, which focused actually on uh, pop-up retail. And so I transitioned into landlord relationships, learning a lot about uh, tech and kind of where there was opportunities for tech to break into the real estate uh, industry, which was lacking. And so through the combination, I found uh, Shadow and uh, figured I could leverage my landlord relations and experience in multifamily into the other side working with all of you. So that's me. Very cool. 
And I just want to make sure that uh, for everybody uh, out there, they understand too, our venture partners, um, they're actually investors as well. So it's not um, that they're coming in and quote unquote advising. Um, they're actually putting their money at risk like uh, those of us in venture uh, have somehow made a living out of it, but this is what we do. Um, so kind of first question, we'll go across the board. Um, so here we are, January, January 20th, 2021. Um, if you think about this day a year ago versus today, what's kind of changed? Uh, kind of a lot going on today, but what's kind of changed in multifamily if you you know, use the rewind button and say a year ago this time versus today. Uh, Akshay, you want to go? Sure. So, so I would say a couple different things. I think in addition to sort of, you know, broader macro trends, um, you know, from a migration standpoint, um, accelerating movement from, you know, sort of high tax, high, you know, cost states such as California, New York, down to, uh, call it, you know, more cost-effective, cost-friendly states like Florida and, and Texas and Georgia. Um, I think we've also seen a shift, you know, a more accelerated shift um, for uh, millennials now looking for their first home, their, their first, you know, opportunity to move into larger spaces. And so this shift really has, in some cases, gone more so from, from sort of urban concentration to exurban um, you know, sort of better bang for buck, uh, both in terms of size and in terms of quantum, um, you know, in, in multiple markets that we're looking at. Um, this, this, for our case in particular, has been the case in Florida and in markets like Houston and Dallas, where we're seeing a broader inflow of people from, from California, from uh, New York, from Boston, from a number of other states, and the capitals followed as well. So, so that's made it very interesting, I think, for garden style apartments in particular. And it's has led to, you know, a shot in the arm, if you will, for, for more aged product that has larger floor plans. Very cool. Um, Robert? The industry, the market has changed considerably since January of last year. COVID upended everything. A gentleman by the name of Chris Lee with CEL Associates that provides a newsletter and advice to uh, to real estate owners said that, that what the pandemic did was accelerate the changes in the industry, that where we are now is where we were expected to be in 2030 and we're now there in 2020, 2021. And by that, he meant that the technology has been brought to the forefront, that we can't deal with people in person, which means we have to do what we're doing. We're doing Zoom meetings now. We're doing, um, we're doing tours by video. We're bringing forward all of that technology. And also landlords have been forced to, to go and, and take a look at the product that they're offering and understand that, that with the pandemic now, that tenants value the outdoors and outside. So not only do they just want a swimming pool in a temperate climate, um, but they want some place to work outside. They want, they want to be comfortable that where they live is also a place that they can comfortably work. That has changed here in the San Francisco Bay Area. All the high-tech companies announced early on that they were releasing their employees to work from home. And that meant a number of employees literally have gone off to parts unknown, national parks like Tahoe, a recreation area here in California. They're now working from there. Um, and not just, not just the tenants that are making the use of Airbnb and other technology companies that have touched real estate, but the landlords are too. A number of landlords in the Bay Area have decided that they are now Airbnb hosts 
for their apartment buildings where the local communities allow that to happen. And of course, that brings all sorts of interesting um, problems and, and opportunities available with rent control and, and local regulation and everything else that we're faced with here on the West Coast. So a, a lot has changed in this industry, but we're still under a great deal of uncertainty. We don't know how long we're gonna be within the pandemic. We don't know if and when. All the people are coming back that have scattered um, from work from home. And at the same time, we're keeping an eye on other technologies that are continuing to touch us, like the autonomous vehicle. I mean, if you put the work from home idea and match it up with autonomous vehicles, you know, over the next few years, it's gonna be interesting that, that the downtown San Francisco, Oakland, downtown San Jose that have been the hubs of high-tech technology and a driver of the economy, you add an autonomous vehicle to people living outside the area and that can work on their way in from home. And that's going to obviously affect the office market as well. So all sorts of changes are bring forward. We're starting to see the opportunities. We're seeing the breakdowns that are happening in our industry. And uh, it, it's gonna be an interesting year, KP. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a real question, right? We're all creatures of habit. Once we get into the habit of not being in the city, is, are we going to have to like break a new habit uh, like me of not wanting to be anywhere near a city? Uh, and, you know, oh, I got to go into the office now? Like, what, what do you mean? Like, who does that anymore? Um, so, no, so I think th those are all great insights to, to keep an eye on. Uh, Vic, what, what, what do you think? You know, this time last year, like, what were you doing? versus now That's, uh, seriously uh, I, I think without without rehashing um some you know the, the points already mentioned which valid right and probably an important consideration especially if you're thinking in thinking through the asset class um is there's this balance between multifamily assets now are partially offices also um especially in areas where they're under pressure i mean i speaking sort of just from what you can see here in new york vacancies are way up um, you know, when, when people are there, the demands on a multifamily property are very different in the world where people are at home. Sometimes, you know, there may be two, three working people in the same unit, plus a kid, plus whatever else. And so the demands on the multifamily asset, I think, have changed. Uh, to your point, KP, we, you know, I, I kind of like working from home now. I, I used to, a year ago, I was on a plane every week to a different place. Uh, very often down to Atlanta. So, you know, cheers to our friends in Atlanta. And, um, you know, I, I haven't been on a plane, so I don't even remember what airports look like. I, I hope that comes back. But there's probably a part of me that will always have an office at home that'll have an eyeball on, how, you know, what is my home supposed to do uh, in order to not only allow me to work in it, but also be a good place for, you know, for, for my baby daughter, for my wife who's also working for so all the stuff, right? Where usually the place just would have been empty all day and that would have been the demands on the multifamily assets. So I think that's one bucket. I think the other that probably not a lot of people are thinking about because the check hasn't come due for this yet um, is that in a world where our urban centers that are you know, sort of disproportionately multifamily that are also running high vacancies because we're talking about migration pattern um, and you know some of these things that are driving people out of urban areas is going to change the tax base of these areas. Very often that is confounded with, it's also areas where we have office assets that are, I mean, face even more vacancy than multifamily. I, you know, I hope, I hope we get to see that day, Robert, when 
autonomous vehicles and changes in our infrastructure uh, change our reliance on urban centers? Because I'm all for it. Just stick me in a house in the woods with an autonomous car I can sleep in on my way into wherever I'm going. But you know, until then, I think we need cities. And it's going to take longer to come away from the tax impact and the social impact and you know, all these things that are downstream from the way people live and work now that I don't think we have had a chance to peel the onion back on yet. Yeah, it's interesting y'all bring this up. There's a book that was published, I think 1999-2000 by Harry Dent called The Roaring 2000s. And he pretty much said, all, like, said all, this is what was going to happen in 2000, right? With the internet and everything else. And of course, a lot of the stuff he wrote about, like the exurbs and all of this, um, it took this long for it to actually kind of, this long in a pandemic, right? Um, John, I'm going to come to you a second, but you, Vic, you brought up something that I, I'd like the group to kind of address. You know, a, an apartment is typically, I'm there during, I'm, I'm off to work during the day. I come back in the evening and I sleep there. So I'm spending three hours and, and sleep time, which means the wear and tear that I put on a property when I'm there all the time versus maybe some of the time. And then also my sensitivity to things working and not working. And like, it's just, it's a lot greater because all of a sudden, you know, the refrigerator is getting open and closed. How many more times a day, the microwave is being used. How many more times a day? Have you all seen any data or indication that says now that people are home more, like, gosh, like the appliances aren't lasting as long. People are being really particular about, you know, paint touch-ups because they, you know, they're having to stare at this imperfection of paint like every day on every Zoom call. And now they're getting a little bit more finicky about it. Have y'all seen any signals around that? Yeah, I, I can't speak specifically to the paint, but, but, you know, for us, I mean, we're, been involved in a, in a heavily workforce housing space. And I would say for now, you know, things like Wi-Fi, things like wired scores, things like who your provider is at the asset has never been more important and is now the focal point of, you know, your amortization package, right? Like if I've got a provider that provides good service and historically been, in, you know, able to provide more stronger speeds, you know, better networks, et cetera, that's now a big value add and, and sort of the willingness to pay for that has gone up versus where it was a year ago. Um, in addition, of course, you know, to utility expenses and having green appliances and things like that, all of those kind of center around a confluence of, of what you mentioned before, which is time spent in the apartment, right? So the technology aspect, both in the form of appliances in terms of service provisions and in the form of providing sort of one-stop shop amenities. So you know, service providers to book, you know, your dog walkers, your childcare, et cetera, having that all in one spot is, is a much bigger value add than it was a year ago, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had an, I had a multifamily developer tell me, yeah, I put gyms in all my, in my locations because people expect it, but people don't use them, right? They're not necessarily. And now all of a sudden, wow, I had to create an app to create a waiting list. So I don't over-occupy my gym all of a sudden people are actually using the equipment, which means the equipment's breaking. You know, the treadmill's always broken now because people are actually using it. Um, didn't expect that kind of thing. So I was curious if y'all had seen anything just anecdotally. Johnny, what about you? What's, what's changed? Yeah, so uh, a combination of what everyone said, I think the most interesting thing is, let's say someone who's a first time New Yorker, where they're choosing to live in New York City has fundamentally changed um, than a year ago. Let's say you don't know anybody in New York and you make $75,000 a year. 
Uh, Manhattan for a lot of people would not be your first option because you just cannot get a desirable apartment for relative to where you're moving from, whether that be Tennessee, Texas, what have you, just to compromise having a dishwasher or, um, you know, just what many people in the United States look as basic things of standard of living for many people who are in New York, they sacrifice that and that's the norm, right? And so where could you find those things such as a dishwasher or a, a, um, a washer dryer in a unit? You would have to move all the way out to Bushwick or uh, parts of Queens and that would be your first option. Um, now, one year later, uh, the people who would typically be going out to those, those different neighborhoods are coming to Manhattan because the prices have dropped a lot. And what's interesting now is that it used to be just if you had a well-situated property in a good location, it was just going to lease up. Location was everything. And landlords who owned um, and had real estate for a long period of time, they said, no, it doesn't matter. You know, I'll put it in the market and it's going to lease up in July and there will always be demand. People are always going to live in the East Village. People are always going to want to live in the Upper East Side, Murray Hill. And um, there's the term, put lipstick on a pig, you know, just like cover things up and uh, it'll move. And now for the first time ever, landlords are understanding that they, it's not enough just to give lease concessions. They have to uh, be innovative in creating some sort of um, tech platforms or full um, amenities through apps into their properties, which a lot of them are pre-war properties, which you know you, they don't have the ability to and infrastructure to do things um, physically with uh, uh, renovations. There's a, there's, a, there's a limit to how much they can do, partially because of the, the laws in New York with uh, rent regulation and MCIs. And so now they're looking to the, the multifamily property technology services, such as the, uh, the dog walking or the laundry or, or what have you uh, to provide through their property management. And um, that's the biggest thing I would say. Pricing, like where people are moving to, you know, as a first option has changed. And now that they and it's, it's not even enough, you know, to um, just be in Manhattan. You have to, you really have to adapt to service uh, tenants who are also at a lower price point than you would have been at a year ago. Um, and that's what I see. Very cool. Um, yeah, for those of you online, um, push your questions to us and we'll have time at the end. Um, but my guess is your questions are hopefully more interesting than my questions. I'm kind of boring. But um, Sarah Maffey with Local Logic um, asked a question about does it is it also increasing the demand of amenities um kind of within walking distance of the building in other words is consumer demand changing within those you know the coffee shops the whatever uh in market and i'll, I'll extend that a little bit you know most people care about schools and etc but are people digging in a little bit more knowing that they're gonna you know you're gonna be home that much more and I, I do kind of care about the coffee shops in my neighborhood. I do kind of care about the restaurants and you know, I probably care about childcare and schools and all those things too. Um, but it, walking distance, especially in some markets, clearly Manhattan walking distance is walking. <laughs> that's, that's kind of um, not that unusual, but some of, some of these other markets where walking distance and right down the street uh, starts to matter. Are you, are you guys seeing, seeing it as well on like local amenities around your properties where there's increased demand happening there? Vic? Anyone? Okay, so I'll, I'll chime in a little bit. I, I don't know if I feel like I'm the most qualified mm -hmm. to answer this, but I, so in our multifamily portfolio, um, some have pretty good walkability, some don't. Um, I would say the questions I get are much more 
around, like, I think when pe people have started including access to the digital services as part of how they believe the amenities are. So people are much more interested in, hey, can I get Instacart or, or Prime Fresh Delivery um, you know, as a proxy for the grocery store? Or people are interested in, um, it really, it's sort of like delivery comes in a bunch of different ways. Like, you know, the local restaurants and, and what their delivery is like or the whatever else. Uh, so I think people are thinking about delivery radius as an element of the amenization of, of an apartment. That's certainly something that, that I have seen. Um, in my discussions with uh, folks that are developers or owners in other markets, um, you know, certainly I, I hear more of the same. I think when you get outside of New York, there's the, the, the habits already include driving um, much, much more frequently maybe than, than they do in, in urban centers. And so I, I would imagine that softens the requirement for things to be walkable. And, and certainly that's what I've heard. I, I actually can't name, this is interesting. And this is a question that I'd probably pose up to this group. I haven't heard a single developer tell me that they are changing fundamentally the configuration of their units uh, or that they are changing uh, fundamentally something about the amenitization package that, that deals with the real estate. People are, you know, they'll bring in like the yoga class or they'll do the whatever that is easy enough to bolt on. Um, but by and large, I've heard, yes, this is a problem. Yes, people's habits are changing, but this building is going to be around for 20 years, 50 years. And, you know, these cycles always come around. And so I think there's some amount of inertia as well, at least in what I've observed in multifamily market. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, historically preferences around space in an apartment has been, oh, now everybody wants granite countertops. Oh, now they want, to, you know, it's been highly facade stuff, but now we're actually, you know, from a design perspective, thinking much more programmatically around use of space. You know, that little uh, office bench that was there, like, oh, it's your little office nook. Wow, now instead of just throwing my mail on it, I might actually use it now because I, I don't have a choice. Um, so, that, so that's interesting to see whether um, people start to incorporate that. Um, and it's interesting. I've seen pockets. I've seen some folks, there's a group that I've worked with in multifamily. They started targeting divorcees and basically create a, created a floor plan where the bonus room could turn into like an extra bedroom for the every other weekend child that shows up and then also be used as a study when the child's not there, right? So literally targeting like, okay, there's a lot of divorced days that need a lot of space when their kids are there and need less space <laughs> when um, the kids aren't there, so to speak. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if people start to think about adaptive models. You know, there's the, the, the work from home layout, so to speak, um, that, that becomes kind of a model type. Um, you know, this idea of like reducing on-site leasing and using tech to do tours and all that, um, I think it's definitely been one of those things people have been talking about. Um, having spent some time in this industry, you know, I think there's a lot of emotional sensitivity to the idea of like staff reduction, kind of culturally, like the idea that like I'm going to reduce the staff. I think while a lot of the tech existed pre-COVID, now all of a sudden, not just this industry, but a lot of industries have kind of said, well, we kind of have this uh, existential threat that becomes an excuse for us to digitally transform, right? Maybe culturally I couldn't make it happen, but now I have a catalyst. What are y'all seeing in terms of accelerating around this, like the remote leasing and the, you know, not act, not having a, a, a leasing agent on staff? 
Um, is that working or people doing it effectively or is it still kind of things we're talking about? Akshay, you want to? Yeah, I think for us, you know, and, and we operate primarily in the workforce space. So there is an element of technology adoption that, that is a little bit more latent there um, than I would say the broader population. Um, so there is an element of, of sort of client and prospect education that needs to take place for, for, you know, that to occur effectively. I think that has certainly accelerated, um, you know, and, and we're employing those, those features to try and capture as much of the market as we can. Uh, it, it certainly helps as well. In addition to sort of, you know, not just replacing the on-site staff or, or augmenting the on-site staff, but to also sort of shift that off-site as well. So whether you're looking at, at the point of sale on your website, including the 3D walkthroughs, whether you're looking at, you know, an augmented or automated call center or AI to chatbots to respond. I think all of that is part of augmentation. Um, for our, our prospects in particular, I think there is an element of education that, that's going to effectively cause this transition to be a little bit slower than it might be for those operating in the B or A space. Um, I will also add that I think, you know, from, from a for us, we're vertically integrated from a property management standpoint, right? So we've got the staff as part of a broader strategic overview. So I think for, for us, culturally, it's important to emphasize the fact that this is an opportunity to grow and maybe shift those people upstream into sort of, you know, more broader global portfolio-wide leasing roles as opposed to property-specific roles. So I think you will see that shift um, on, a staff, on a staffing basis upstream um, to some extent as well incorporating, you know, broader strategy on a portfolio level for some groups. Um, again, that's, that's the way we're working. And, and I think we're trying to emphasize the fact that we're growing and, and you guys may not be leasing specific to a property, but you may be leasing for the broader Atlanta region or for the broader Texas region over time. Um, and I think that's the right way to do the transition. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up, you know, offshoring and outsourcing, like that's been around forever. Right. And a lot of people, you know, I used to have like, 500 people in India that built product for me and got better at managing remote, remote teams. Um, what's interesting is we've all had to get a quick lesson <laughs> on managing remote teams and working with, you know, with remote teams. And my theory is that like, as we all get better and better at it, we kind of start not caring, right? It's, it's like becomes the, Oh, I need to have someone right next to me that I can teach and, and all that, but if you if you start getting good at teaching and mentoring and building people's careers up, all of a sudden your leasing office might be in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, because it's cost you know the turnover is lower because people want those jobs. They'd rather have a thought work a thought worker job kind of thing, and of course you know cost being a factor. Um, but it, I have a theory that says as we all get better at this, including our customers get better at this the less worrisome they're going to get about like, Oh, I need to go meet someone face to face. So, so it's interesting, actually, what you're talking about is like, there's still going to be people, the role might be at get elevated. Um, you know, and I think if you read all the data around consumer buying behavior, nobody walks into a car dealership saying, Hey, tell me what you got. Right. They're highly educated. They're highly informed. They just need that last 10% guidance to kind of affirm what they already knew coming into it, really, right? You're not really going to teach them anything that new most of the time. Yeah, I would say it's not as binary. It's more social proof. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think I, I, I totally agree. I don't think it's as binary as replacement of staff, right? The way we're thinking about it is effectively scaling time and scaling resources. So I think that's the approach being taken is, can you facilitate, you know, 10 more appointments for this one leasing agent a day, for example, you know, and, and what is the conversion rate there? And thinking about that within broader portfolio strategy of saying, okay, I'm buying my next asset, but I may not need to add you know, X, three, four, five people on site because I can scale this one person's time to match. Robert, um, are you seeing this percolating out to your investors and the, the, you know, the, the LPs that are backing these properties where they're saying, hey, I, I know you, you manage and operate, but I'm hearing that we can reduce some costs by doing X, Y, and Z. Are you, are you getting any calls from investors kind of asking, you know, other than uh, vacancy, like they probably care about those things, right? But uh, are they asking any questions around like, hey, what are we doing different? Like, we've got to be doing something there. Are they asking those questions? They are. And where their concerns right now are around is just because of the pandemic, because of the economy, they're highly concentrated on vacancy rates and what their what their rents are doing. You know, I'm in the thick of, of rent control here in the Bay Area. I think I probably have 19 jurisdictions I have to work with, all with their own rules and regulations and forms with that. So it's all about maintaining as high a base rent as you can, but getting the units rented. So like Akshay had mentioned, the technology that we're looking at, that our, that our clients are looking at, is to not substitute and replace the on-site managers it's that their focus is no longer being an order taker where they were two years ago because everybody wanted an apartment and rents were flying up. Now they have to sell, which means that every phone calls is, is important. So the technology comes in to pick up the phone when they can't answer it. And the technology is used now to provide them better training. The technology is used of no longer running to the bank to put checks in the mail. Now what we do, we do online rent payments and automate that from a technology standpoint. So we're looking at technology as are the clients is what's cost effective to get them to move to be now, now they have to be marketing experts and people that are nice to other people on the phone and, and can communicate well in email to bring the tenants in and to get them in a rent that we're not chasing the market down. It's a different dynamic. It probably will change um, over time and, and go back. We always go through cycles in this industry. Um, but the technology that the clients are interested in is, yeah, Robert, get me full and get me full at, at a correct, at a great rent. And that's what we're looking for technology to do. Got it. Johnny, what about you? When you, you? I know you deal with investors and, you know, there's a little bit when everything's doing well, investors just kind of set it and forget it. Um, the minute they see any kind of red on a piece of paper, all of a sudden they want to do their job and your job, right? <laughs> so let me give you some advice, right? You get those great calls, like, would love to catch up and give you some, see what I can do to help, right? That help in quotes. What, what are you seeing from kind of the investor community that backs a lot of these properties? Are they... Are they calling people and offering their help? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I want to uh, follow up with what Robert just said, as far as the technology, it's being more incorporated, but then again, it's not there to substitute what was in place before, rather assist for the reason that what I found that when you have that idea of substituting the in-house leasing or your brokers, 
it, there, you lose that touch point of the human element and it makes it easier to, yes, inbound a lot of leads, but they maybe not be as serious. Um, when you have that, when you have that platform where you have that many more options and there isn't somebody on the other side to kind of direct you like, oh, well, you should know this about the landlord, or this is kind of, uh, he's a reputable guy, or he owns this many units, or, you know, this type of issue, you, uh, the super is really helpful. The, the technology, the technology that is being offered to kind of streamline a lot of leads doesn't provide that. So the only way that you can really have a great match is if you have both those people coming together, both those, those, those items coming together. Um, and so what's interesting is that I, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, taking in a lot of these new substitutes to, for lead generation, but uh, while they are getting a lot more leads, touch points, what I've been told is that a lot of them are not as serious. Um, so, it's a matter of how can you get qualified leads? And I think that's one of the things that um, people are trying to try to hit the, try to address um, right now. Um, so we have one question about this idea of like using robots for, um, you know, for cleaning, for, you know, to, to, to automate some of the processes on a property. Um, sounds like the makings of a great episode for Black Mirror, but um, but I, I have seen people talking about like autonomous service carts, right? So if I'm a maintenance person and my tool cart is across the way, um, I saw this in Tokyo uh, about a year and a half ago where everyone on the job site could summon uh, a hover, uh, like a little rover that from wherever the main inventory was, the rover would bring them, oh, I need a hammer, but it's four stories down. I could use an app and get a rover to bring me a hammer um, kind of thing. Um, are y'all seeing any of those, um, the makings of Black Mirror episodes, like whether it's autonomous cleaning, autonomous, now I've seen several autonomous lawnmowers, um, which I think, you know, you should give robots weapons um, give them blades and let them run around. But, um, I mean, are y'all seeing any of that kind of edge around robotics and maintenance and that kind of thing? Yeah. KP, I, I see it here in the Bay area. I mean, I, I was having an outdoor lunch the other day when restaurants were back open here in downtown Mountain View. And I had to get out of the way on the sidewalk from a, a mobile cooler on wheels that that was coming down the sidewalk waiting for the light to turn green so it would cross the street and deliver a couple of meals to individuals so it, it exists now um, it's interesting what that's going to do um, in terms of multifamily and, and giving people that that capability whether you know it's going to be able to uh, to bring it directly to their door or not with secured buildings and other issues um, but that whole that whole issue of, of robots and autonomy and delivering, I, I would urge people that there's a, a new book out called Ghost Roads, and it's written by Anthony Townsend. And he talks about just those issues. And he makes the argument that everybody's looking at, at autonomous vehicles and robots to be moving people where most of their most of the value is going to be in moving supplies and, and moving material. And you see that now with the growth of Amazon and others 
um, more and more deliveries being made. I think one of the statistics he mentions that the average family now has five deliveries a week, I believe he said, coming to their home through either the mail or through FedEx or Amazon delivery of groceries or other goods. And it, it's interesting. I would urge people to, to take a look at that book and, and, and take a look at what, the, what he sees for our future in terms of that. Yeah, you know, there was a deal that was done, um, Bus Dynamics, who I'm fairly close with, um, they got sold to Hyundai. And to me, that was just a strong signal of moving the high commercialization. Um, you know, to get a spot robot, it's about 30 grand. And you kind of need to be a little bit of a programmer to get it working and all this other stuff. But if Hyundai is now owns them, just, you know, if you can bring price down and ease of use, um, there's going to be, you know, opportunities for, you know, for, for all of that. Um, and I asked the, oh, here's a question. Uh, so the question is, you know, on, with increase of cold leads, uh, what technologies do you see around conversion leads rather than just generating leads? Um, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, it's a little bit interesting when you see, you know, if someone says, oh, well, I want to build a CRM. I'm like, yes, it's called Salesforce. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Right? <laughs> like, like, why are you re reinventing something? Uh, I think uh, Mr. Benioff has that nailed down pretty well. Um, but what you start to see is nuance. You know, you start to see the industry-specific versions, and I've seen a lot of that. Do you, which brings up an interesting topic. You know, do you guys see, like, would you rather see a mainstream product like Salesforce and modify it for your use, or would you rather take something that maybe has less features, functionality, but is very specific to, to your market? In other words buy Salesforce adapted to multifamily or buy something specifically targeted at multifamily that lacks, you know, 90% of the extensibility of a Salesforce type product. Yeah. I, I mean, our, our take is, you know, basically Salesforce and CRMs do a great job at addressing the top of the funnel. They're not the best at addressing conversion, right? Necessarily. So I think our focus is now looking at tools that maximize conversion, you know, whether that's, that's for capital raising purposes or for, you know, lead generation of the property sites, it's for looking at tools that, you know, maybe assess your recordings on your calls and say, okay, these many use, these many words were used this frequently on a call that was successful versus not and starting to iterate and improve that over time and incorporate that into your process. So I think the focus is on conversion as opposed to expanding the top of the funnel, right? I think, so in, in our eyes, I think the focus is on, like you said, more of the latter products that are specific to, you know, catering to multifamily, catering to capital raising that help with that latter portion of the funnel, as opposed to just managing the initial outreach and the initial CRM. Yeah. Um, yeah. And KP, if I could just interject in terms of, of that concept of turning people um, into leads, the conversion factor, um, there's a lot of conversation in the industry about the use of chatbots and, and trying to maintain and open up and, and continue with that conversation and also then to automate emails or text messages to individuals to continue that conversation. I mean, it's, it's an old sales you know, conversation that the more time you spend with an individual, right, the greater the likelihood they're going to do business with you. And part of it is that, and the other part is just that the chatbot and the automation really goes and using artificial intelligence really goes to to solving the need or the problem of that individual 
you can't have a text message that we've got wonderful studios when you're trying to rent to a family of five. It just, it, it doesn't work. So that's, that's what I see happening and going on. And there's a lot of conversation with chatbots in the industry right now for that. Yeah, we, we've been seeing, you know, when you look at kind of how sales has moved from in-person, let me fly in and tell you about my product to a lot more remote, um, the ability, you know, we're not going out to happy hours. So the relationship building, right? There's, there's facts and there's feelings. Facts are on FAQs and all that, but the, the conversion of a sale is sometimes around feelings and relationship. Um, and we've just being a trend towards really trying to build a lot more social proof because you're not getting the time to really go out and have a drink or in a leasing office, spend the time. And like, you know, the, the social aspects to get people building relationships. And a lot of it's kind of the, the social proof creation is having to kind of step up their game. Um, if you guys had, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, you, you guys get to see a lot of startups either through us or through your uh, kind of your day job, so to speak. Um, and, and I don't think any of you guys write code as far as I know, but if you had the magic wand, right? I don't see anybody doing this. And if I had the knowledge and money and a magic wand, like here's what I wish someone would go build. Is there anything that stands out, Vic? Well, that's a good question. I think there's, there's actually a lot in that bucket. Um, and one of the things that I've been trying to be a little bit more rigorous about recently is to have exactly that conversation with vertically integrated owner operators with development companies with big LPs to to see if there's if there's <clears throat> convergence uh, on a question like that um, some of the things that I think we see are um, you know people would love to wave a magic wand to have like future goggles on underwriting uh, especially in cases where there's something speculative about a development or a value add sort of project. Um, that's you know, earliest in the funnel on the sourcing side. Everyone wants magic wand on the sourcing side. Um, I think as you get into the actual operations of, of a particular asset or, or maybe for like for, for pieces of the operations of an asset, um, I think you know, increasingly you're hearing and, and some of this is, is, is actually happening uh, in the world, certainly to Robert's previous point, you know, the future is never evenly distributed. Um, but to, to perfect, like perfect tracking of like everything in a building, whether that's your electrical system, uh, plumbing, especially not just leaks, um, foot traffic, elevator, basically any of the things that could result in larger CapEx projects down the road, especially in this world, you know, to a previous conversation, everyone is home now. If your building isn't empty, then it probably has twice as many average residents during the course of the day and that much more load on everything. Um, you know, that many more toilet flushes, that many more um, heater runs, that much more air conditioning in the summers. Um, I think there's increasing interest on tracking that for CapEx reasons and managing it because in cases where um, the ownership or the management is paying some amount of the utility, then you know, having some amount of control over that is really helpful. And you layer on top of that, just the focus of ESG and environmental impact uh, from buildings, multifamily especially. I think there's, there's a lot of wishful magic wand thinking on elements of usage application and output of, of a building in that end. And then, you know, and then I'll separate, there's probably like a third column of 
you know, stuff like Hello Alfred. I'd love to wave a magic wand and have my day-to-day challenges go away. I personally think some of those things are a little bit less interesting, although they can be very impactful for certain segments. Um, but I, some of the things that I think we're paying much closer attention to are, you know, so there's companies that are tracking garbage output, that are tracking water flow, uh, that are tracking not just electrical, but the impact of different projects. So you could have part of your building running solar, part of your building um, running traditional and, and look at the impact of that uh, a couple of different ways. I think there's a couple of cool things happening there. And my, my prediction is that we're going to see a lot more cool product in that sense, partially because we've got a pretty mature infrastructure for sensors and systems. And partially also because you know, at least for the next couple of years, we're going to continue seeing this load on multifamily that is you know, maybe a little bit different than what these assets were designed for. Very cool. Robert, I just handed, he just handed, Vic just handed you the magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> the issue that I'm having, and, and the industry is still relatively new, um, it's a bit fragmented. I mean, we've got internet listing services now, and we're starting to put together just a, a custom spreadsheet in my company of, okay, we're using Craigslist, we're using Dwellsy, we're using Zillow, we're using Zumper, we're using RentPath, we're using, we're using apartments.com. What's effective? What, what works? But along those same line, it, it's, it's a background conversation of, wow, there's so many different services. They all offer different things. Are, we're starting now to generate um, more and more expenses and we're taking a look back of, look, if we're spending $1,000 a month in marketing services, are we getting you know, a multiple back of what we're receiving? And at what point do we need to scale back? What's working? What doesn't work? And part of it is there's all these, these, all these different alternatives available. There is no kind of one, one shop place for, for, for taking care of the needs. And part of that is, okay, that's competition, that's the industry, that's technology right now, as we are relatively new, and we are relatively new to the industry embracing technology as well. I mean, real estate agents were probably the last ones to, to, to become involved and start to push technology for all sorts of reasons. Um, but a magic wand for me would be a, a, a software program that will alert me and go, Robert, look, we notice from the input of what you've given us that you're going to have you're going to have an upward adjustment in your mortgage um, payment because this loan is adjustable and and that six month or annual adjustment is going up. We've taken a look at the underlying index. You're going to have to go up another three thousand dollars a month in you know in order to pay for this. We recommend either going up three thousand dollars a month in income and here are the units that we're looking at or here's a way to reduce your cost $3,000 on a monthly basis just to keep your net operating income the same. So when, when I look at technology right now, I, I look at all these bits and pieces that are solving little chunks of what, what we do for a living for our clients. And kind of the big picture that I, that I have to keep in mind is when we start to look at these, these bits and pieces of technology, it's always with a background conversation of, what's my job? And I tell my clients, my job literally is to make you more money now and in the future. And so you have to pay attention to all these little bits (laughs) coming at you. And I'm oversimplifying this, obviously, but we have to keep in mind on what the big picture is. 
and anything that moves us along, man, that magic wand that can tell me that ahead of time and tell me, Robert, in three months, you're going to have a cash flow problem. You're going to have a crunch here. Um, or Robert, unemployment starting to creep up. We see that in other indices involved. Be aware of it. That's the wand I want, KP. <laughs> That's what yeah. I want. Yeah, no, I hear you. You know, uh, Nick Durham on our team did this fantastic multifamily tech report. And, and we still run a little parochial around here. Like I review stuff. Um, and I was like, no, it's all got to fit on one page, man. Like people don't know how to digest more than one page. Like the landscape, he's like, dude, like there's, do you know how many products there are on just like remote leasing? Like there's, a, you know, so I, we feel you too. Like we're constantly looking at startups and we try to pattern recognize, okay, here's a bunch of startups that do this and that. And, you know, every, every day we get another inbound from another startup trying to do something else. So, so yeah. Um, who do you want to pass the magic wand to Robert? We'll give it to Johnny. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Um, right. So I just want to understand the question. Magic wand is like, if we could predict what, uh, what, no, if you could, like, if you, if, if, if you could build a startup with a magic wand, right? Like, Hey, I could really use some technology that did X, Y, and Z. Like nobody's thinking about this. Why doesn't someone build this? Um, I mean, I think, I honestly think that we kind of talked about it. If there was a system to vet tenants um, to move into apartments and not waste either brokers' times or landlords' times uh, with just casually looking at stuff versus we know that there's a high level intent, that would be extremely beneficial um, because it's just very inefficient, you know, for landlords or property managers or brokers with the current system. You're basically just getting an inbound inquiry. And you have to kind of feel them out, you know, if this person, like how many apartments have you looked at, you know, how long have you been here? When is your, where are you moving from? Or when is your lease, you know, uh, ending? Is it two weeks? Is it six weeks from now? And you just kind of feel it out. So if there was some sort of um, system where people knew that people, if they had an inbound lease through that system, they were highly committed to leasing soon then uh, I think that would be huge benef hugely beneficial for everybody in the multifamily space. Because um, I think the biggest issue uh, on everything in multifamily, whether it's commercial brokers, retail leasing, uh, residential leasing, property managers, is that there is not an effective way of knowing how serious someone is. And it's just kind of like on a from like a personal relationship, maybe you know the inside scoop of this person is reliable or not. But technology... Um, I, I've yet to see, uh, anything in the multifamily space that can vet somebody to show that like, this is someone highly, highly committed, um, and is ready to pull the trigger once, once they come through a, a platform, whether it's street easy or, or Zumper or whatever, we don't know how committed they are, um, when they come in with the leads. Got it. Very cool. Akshay. Um, no, I thought all those were great ideas. Um, my, my thoughts kind of revolve around something that's, that's kind of being done in part. So local logic, for example, is a good example. Um, I think there are a lot of qualitative elements uh, that feed into sort of highest and best use of, of capital and highest and best use of time, not only from sort of initial acquisition of an asset, but determining, you know, where value add or where construction dollars should go, and then ultimately where uh, asset management time and effort should go. 
Um, there are a lot of qualitative elements, you know, whether that's location, what somebody's willing to pay to be, you know, a mile and a half from a coffee shop versus what somebody's willing to pay for, you know, having a washer dryer in unit versus what they're willing to pay for being, you know, um, four doors down from the loudest person in the hall, whatever that may be. Right. I mean, I think having a consolidated resource that ultimately converted some of those metrics into, you know, something a little bit more quantitative that can be attributed to an ROI would be immensely helpful. And I think from a sort of highest and best return on time perspective, um, I mean, that, that would be magic for, for a group like us and from both an income and, and time perspective. All right. Very cool. Um, we haven't had a lot of questions. I've got one last question that we'll wrap. Um, what advice would you give to someone youngish given that they're, you know, to me, this is going to be the next 10 years is the golden age of entrepreneurship, right? Do all look at all the data. This is the time to start a company, which seems so contrary to anything, you know, unemployment's high, all that, but this is the time to start companies. What, what advice, and, I, and I've seen in multifamily, there's a lot of, you know, not necessarily tech, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs that go out and buy one property, two properties. And they're, what, what advice would you give to somebody that's early in their career kind of about getting into multifamily that's changed maybe with all this, like that there's opportunities that are approachable or, you know, if, if you were them, you know, that whole, the, the 20 something year old self, which Johnny, that probably may or may not apply because you're probably your 20 something year old self. <laughs> but um, if you had to give advice to me. <laughs> what everyone else says. Uh, if you had to give advice to your 20 something year, year old self, like what, what would you do? What, would, what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, Akshay? Yeah, I think for, for, you know, just sort of more on a broader macro scale, I think there's been under emphasis on sort of the lower income space and, and affordability space. I think that's going to be huge in the coming decade, uh, not only from an inflow of capital, but, you know, from a, a demand perspective, I think there's going to be some elements of a K-shaped recovery, right? Some people have done better than others through this, this whole pandemic situation. Um, and so I think whether you're looking at affordable housing as an asset class or whether you're looking at technologies that ultimately, you know, resolve some of the issues faced by this underbanked segment, in some cases, financially underrepresented segment, I think that that represents a huge opportunity. Um, and I think that's going to be brought to the forefront um, over the next coming years. Very cool. Robert? Let me unmute myself here, KP. You know, Real estate's one of the biggest industries in the U.S. in terms of asset value. I think it's in the trillions of dollars right now. And if you take a step back and take a look, all of life happens in some kind of a building when you think about it, right? I mean, it, it begins at birth. You're in a specialized building called a hospital. Get a little older and you, you go off to specialized buildings called schools and colleges, each with unique, unique buildings to service that crowd. You go off to the workforce and you're going into specialized buildings th that are offices or, or retail stores, groceries, shopping malls, what, 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 what few may be remaining in the U.S. Um, and everything happens within that context. And for somebody in their 20s that, that wants to take a look and get into what is going to be a, a, an industry that's going to go through, I think, a metamorphosis, and they're going to start taking a look at, at what a building is to solve what problem. I mean, you, you take a look at the Great American Shopping Mall, I think it is back east, largest shopping mall in America. 
And it's more of an entertainment venue than it is a place that, that sells goods and services to sell on a retail level. And I think that, you know, somebody getting into the industry that, that's taking a look at it, technology is going to have a much greater effect. And I think you're going to start to see a blur and a blend of, like we're seeing now in the pandemic, you know, the office becoming the work from home, the work from home, the home becoming the office. And, and I think the blurring of the lines and, and the, um, the aggregation of what we do for buildings is going to change. I mean, there's talk that, that office buildings now have to be someplace other than where you come to work. It's also where, where you display art, where you do other things. You know, we're looking at movie theaters that may or may not exist in 10, 20 years. I think Netflix announced yesterday they surpassed 200 million users. That's going to have an effect on the marketplace. And somebody that's forward thinking and takes a really look at what the base is of what that building is supposed to do and the function and the value behind it. Pretty interesting and, and on where we go from here. I, yeah. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> Great, Vic. You know, I think there there are two there are two critical factors that I I think this is a beautiful time to start a company, um, and especially if you are relatively young and relatively unencumbered. I think that's that's those are advantages. Money is cheap right now, so if you're looking at real estate, um, that's sort of the operating side. Uh, we probably have. I would say no more than another two years, although that's my prediction, I could be wrong, on interest rates where they are now and sort of the general availability of capital on the equity side as well. You could make the argument this is the time to be audacious, go big, maybe lever a little bit more than otherwise would be prudent because, again, this is advice for someone in their 20s. Uh, and I think the other side of it is in the same way that we are all right now behind a screen on Zoom, so is anyone that you would want to get to. So if you're looking for someone that might otherwise be difficult to get a meeting with, that guy or girl is behind their computer just like you are. Uh, people are much, much more accessible now than I think they ever have been. That probably also goes on for a while, especially as uh, you know, there's some amount of working from home becomes permanent or semi-permanent. So I, I would tell you know, young me or young anybody, like, you know, be audacious, be out there, Everyone is available. Cash is cheap. Do the thing. Nice. Awesome. I love it. Johnny? Yeah. Young me. Uh, I guess still me. <laughs> um, I think honestly... I'm sorry, Johnny. I don't mean to, I don't mean to pick on you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the biggest... I don't know about... I, one of the things that I think I've, I've opened up my mind as through these years that I think applies to myself still and even if I was five years younger, is that in my generation, um, when times, millennials, when times are good, there's this, there's this idea of like, you kind of have to always be looking like your, your life is going well. You know, you, when I grew up, it was like, it wasn't a matter of going to college, like where you went to college, right? And then, you know, what you're doing after college. And a lot of it is basically your ego of kind of showing that you are making it in society when behind the scenes, a lot of people in that generation, even though they look like they're doing well, can are living paycheck to paycheck in New York City. Um, and when Corona hits, I think it life fundamentally changed where people are kind of realize that like what they thought was important um, really has shifted or maybe has not been sustainable. 
And so I think when we hit this point, as far as the bring it back to the entrepreneurs, the biggest life lesson is that you should be able, to, you, you really need to remove your ego to be successful. Um, and I think that, the, and, I, and I apply this to real estate because when I started in real estate in 2015, 2014, 2015, we were at like the height of the market. And these people who really got burned uh, were the ones who were basically saying like, oh, we invested, you know, in this property in Fifth Avenue, or we were in this property and that property. And it looks like, you know, on paper that they really knew what they were doing. Three years later, you know, the, they were leasing out retail at $1,000 a foot, which is now worth like 300 a foot. You know, uh, all the, uh, the mortgage, you know, that they had, you know, when they came to refinance were a big, big problem. And I think a lot of it was just the people wanted to show that they were doing things um, like big things. And what I'm tying together is that what I, what I, I think now is a time where you can invest in deals and understand that you don't need to have, you don't need to go to the class A deal to be successful in real estate. You can be in like some dinky submarket in, in Florida and still crush it long-term as long as you have a good basis. Um, yeah. And understanding that's the long-term. A lot of people I think who are my age five years ago, very impatient. And they're like, I want to be here in five years, but in real estate, it's, it's all the long-term. Um, and I don't think, I think the business of getting in and out of real estate for like three to five years and holding and just selling at a gain is over. Um, so the best way to break into real estate from people who are around my age who are starting to build portfolios is they just need to get on base. Not every single real estate deal transaction they get into is going to be a home run. They just understand that they need to start buying to build up a portfolio, build up credibility amongst their investors. And a lot of people are looking at the economics right now, low interest rates are like, oh, like I need to be able to get into a great deal or else I shouldn't get into real estate. Get into, just get into the marketplace. And if you can get in the marketplace and you know, understand it's the long-term, this is the first step of a long, long process, you'll probably be better off. Thanks, Johnny, that's a great one. Yeah. So the takeaway is get on base. Yeah, get, on, get base. on base. Hey, guys, thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. This is super helpful. For those of you listening in, here's what's to expect. Uh, you will get an email from us. Um, so our accelerator program is open to accredited investors. You can invest as little as a thousand bucks in these uh, multifamily tech startups that we've vetted. And the team here has been highly involved in coaching, et cetera, and investing in. So you'll be getting an email after this uh, around that information. And if you have an interest, um, definitely, um, like Johnny said, get on, get on base. Just get on base, y'all. Just get on base. Um, so thanks, y'all, for uh, participating today and look forward to hanging out on another day. Thank you. Take care. See y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers.